0: Well, for those who are observant among you, you will know uh, that I'm an old man. (laughs) The reason I'm sharing my testimony this morning is actually that it was exactly 60 years ago, as we are here this morning, 60 years ago, that I was sat in a prison cell reading a Gideon Bible and uh, on the 10th of September 1959 I got down on my knees and prayed to God that he would take my life and change it. In fact I gave him 10 days which seemed to be reasonable at the time. (laughs) Uh, But... uh, It's taken him 60 years and he's still working on it, so there we go. I uh, grew up in an orphanage. My father died when I was just a year old, and uh, my mother uh, had only five days before his death given birth to my young sister Doreen. I was the youngest of four boys, so you can imagine it was a bit of a difficult time, especially as it was... 1942, and the war was raging, and there was no such thing as social services in those days, and she had to just make her way through life, and uh, that meant giving up two of her children, and I was the noisiest, so uh, I was put into an orphanage, and there I stayed until I was 15. By this time in my life, I had become an inveterate thief. I broke into my first house when I was just eight years old. And throughout my school years, I was constantly up and down in front of the juvenile magistrate. uh, And every time I went in front of a juvenile magistrate, they told me, if you continue like this, we'll send you away. And I rather liked the idea of being sent away from the orphanage, so I just kept going. Uh, They never did send me away. In those days, school-leaving age was 15. Imagine that! Happy days. Uh, The only problem for me was that it meant that uh, I had nowhere to go. So that's where I went, and that's me as a young 15-year-old And quite good looking, I think. (laughs) Uh, Those of you who are old enough to remember James Dean will recognise the modelling there. This is me just uh, days before I went to prison. Uh, I'd been in the army for nine months before they kicked me out. Uh, I stole some post office savings books from the barracks post office and... uh, got caught eventually trying to take money out of these uh, post office accounts. Um, I'd been quite successful up until the point I got caught. (laughs) And uh, so I, at 16, landed back on the streets of Southampton. And I was then the only homeless person on the streets of Southampton. It does not bear thinking about today when there are many, many homeless, but uh, the older people used to go to the Salvation Army hostel. I went there once and discovered that was not the place for a 16-year-old boy, as good-looking as I was, uh, to be in a hostel with uh, other men. So uh, I lived homeless and... Uh, the police were actually incredibly kind to me, even though they knew I was a crook, um, because sometimes they'd come down to the Royal Pier where I had my kind of temporary lodgings, and they'd shine a torch in and say, Vic, are you in there? Come on, lad. Let's get down to the nick and get you some bangers and mash. In those days, the police were real gentlemen. Uh, anyway, on my 18th birthday, I, um, I'd broken into some houses, because we were going to actually have a party that day, and, you know, when you're 18, you're going to have a booze up, and uh, as it was my birthday, my gang said, it's down to you to buy the booze. So I broke into 22 houses that day, uh, and on my last house... Uh, I remember where it was. It was 48 Burgers Road. I pass it almost every day now when I go home. Uh, so I know the house extremely well. Uh, and um, while I was in there, I stole a beautiful camera. I mean, it really was a beauty. And I took it down to Hanley's in Shirley Road, which we all knew was a fence. Uh, You know, if you're nicking things, you want to know where to get rid of it. And Hanley's was the place to go. And uh, I went there on this particular morning and uh, I said, uh, give me a price. He said, ah, Vic, it's too good for me. He said, "Uh, my brother will be here this afternoon. Uh, He'll give you a price on it. So I went back in the afternoon and instead of his brother... There was my friendly policeman, uh, who knew me very well, and said, come on Vic, let's get down the Nick, you can clear up some of my books for me. And um, as I had no fixed address, they gave me one. And uh, I landed up in Winchester Prison on my 18th birthday, the very first day it was possible for me to be in prison, I was there. All of my teachers had ever told me was that uh, I'd spend my life in and out of jail. And uh, the evidence, frankly, was on their side. And it was while I was there, I was in a cell by myself, not allowed to mix with other prisoners. I uh, was able to have half an hour's exercise in the morning and half an hour in the afternoon, just going round and round the yard. And uh, the rest of the day was mine. In my cell, there was uh, a Gideon Bible. Now, I was not a reading kind of a person. Uh, I have dyslexia, and reading is quite difficult. But there was nothing else to do, and so I picked up this Bible, started to read it. It was in the old King James Version, what we used to call the Authorized Version. A lot of these and vows and cansts and wasps. And uh, the first chapter was full of people doing something called a begat. And so-and-so begat what's-his-name, and he begat the other one, and the other one begat the name I couldn't pronounce. And they went on begatting and begatting and begatting for a whole chapter. And I thought, this is a really exciting reading <laughs> But there was nothing else to do, so I just kept going. And uh, I became fascinated by Jesus. I mean, there were certain things about him that appealed to my rather rebellious spirit. Uh, because uh, he, he sort of took on authority. In a way that I love to take on authority, still do, you know, even at my age, I love to do it because uh, I think authority ought to be questioned. And uh, anybody who's been listening to the Brexit debates should know that that's the truth. It most certainly should be questioned. And um, he had a gang called them Disciples, but I mean, just like my gang, I mean, I. I I had a gang that I went around with, and he went around with his gang. He was homeless, just like me. Said the birds of the air have their nests, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And I thought, wow, this guy's really, really cool. But the thing that fascinated me most was that he always seemed to be on the side of the people who were in need. And I had a sort of inbuilt kind of love for people who were on the wrong side of the fence. I mean, I was on the wrong side of the fence, I know that, and therefore you'd expect it. But it was sort of in me that you ought to care about other people, and Jesus cared And he said fascinating stuff. I didn't understand it all at first. He he talked about being born again. And I thought, that would be a really good thing to do. Because, frankly, the first time I was born, it was a little bit of a mess. You know, and um, it didn't work out too well. So I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be born again? and have an an entirely new life. That's when I got down on my knees, and I prayed to God. I said, God, if you're there, you've got ten days to change my life, and if you ain't done it by then, you've copped it. (laughs) But I found that I was crying. I thought, what the heck am I crying for? I mean, if anybody sees me, they'll think I'm a real wimp. So... I rang the bell. Inside the cell door, there's a bell. And a warden came up. He says, what do you want? I said, I'd like to see a chaplain. He says, what on earth do you want to see a chaplain for? I said, I think, I think I've think i just become a Christian.
1: Oh, he says,
0: it's the Methodist you want. Next day, up came the Methodist minister. You know, with the clerical collar on. a Skinny bloke. Big clerical collar, so he looked a little bit like a vulture. And uh, he sat on the edge of my bed and put his hands between his knees and started to rock backwards and forwards. And I thought, this is a weirdo. I told him what had happened. He says, do you know this has never happened to me before? I said, but it hasn't happened to you, makes it's happened to me. So he says, um, look, I'll send you up the Methodist recorder. I thought, they're never going to allow a musical instrument in a prison cell. <laughs> but discovered it was, it was a newspaper. So I read this thing cover to cover. And it wasn't until I was in the back page re- reading the situation's vacant column but I thought, this is really, really weird. <laughs> I'm sitting in prison reading the Situation Vacant column in the Methodist recorder. Well, I was sentenced to spend a year in London. It was in a probation hostel. It was a real good let-off, uh, because you were allowed to go out and work during the day. You had to come back at night, but hey-ho. Uh, and on a Sunday, you could go out. So I went to church found myself in this brand new church, really, really fancy church. I mean, I stood in the doorway there, and it was just row upon row, of bald heads and fancy hats. Because everybody wore hats, the women wore hats in those days. And uh, I thought, this is a really strange place. And then I saw a couple of women round about the fifth row turned around and looked at me, Well, I I grant that I didn't look the normal kind of person going into church, but they did give me rather a sour look. By the time the service was over, I determined I would never, ever go to church again. And on the way out, the minister was standing at the door, shaking hands with people. You know, nice to see you, here's a sugar lump. Um, And uh, he put his hand out, and I thought, right, you beggar. Now, believe me, I had a very good, strong handshake. I used to be a boxer in those days, so, you know, I was, I was pretty fit. And I shook him by the hand. It was the handshake of the century. <laughs> and he just smiled, at least I think he was smiling. And um, he said, um, what's your name? I said, Vic. He says, where, where are you from, Vic? I said, the probation hostel up the road. He said, oh, that's nice said, it might be for you, mate, but I've got to live there. So he said, look, would you like to come to my place for tea this afternoon? I thought, he's bent. <laughs> I mean, really, the only kind of person who invites you back to their home when you're on the streets, believe me, uh, is very seriously bent. So he said, look, he said, I've got four daughters and they'd love to meet you. I said, I'll be there. (laughs) (laughs) Had the most profound influence on my life, really profound. I mean, that guy became my friend, my mentor, um, right up until the time he died. He he lived to almost 100, and I went to Tenby, where he was at that stage, and I was there just before he died. Just a very, very dear, influential friend. The things that he taught me were so important to my life. And um, I suppose p- the most important was they always draw a circle wide enough to draw people in. And that's lived with me For 60 years, believe me, that if you're going to be serious about living as a Christian, and in my case, being ordained, there I am on the day of my ordination, you see the sun, just a pierce of light came through at that point and shone upon me. And that's been happening for uh, for 50 years, that was 50 years ago. And, um, and I've lived my life seriously trying to be like Jesus. And uh, I take that very, very seriously. And constantly working to bring people into a living, loving relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you some of what that means in my life. And perhaps you can begin to see something of what God wants for you. I, um... Sorry, where's, where do I point this thing? Oh, there you go. First of all, God gave me an incredible lady to share my life with. This is Sue, on the day we got married. And... Uh, We had 47 wonderful years in which uh, that young lady was my partner in ministry. Everything I did in ministry, we did together. And um, that operated right up until uh, five years before her death uh, when she developed Alzheimer's. And the greatest privilege of my life was to care for my wife uh, through those years of Alzheimer's. People ask me, how can you love a God who allows suffering? Well, we read it earlier. Suffering develops perseverance and perseverance faith. And we because of our suffering do the same as we do because of Christ's suffering. He comforts us in our sorrow so that we can comfort others in their sorrow. So never ever run away from suffering. I do not make light of suffering Suffering is suffering. It never stops being suffering. But it's glorious when it's placed into the hands of God. Believe me. He will use it. He gave us a wonderful family. Here's my two daughters. And... um, They love the Lord. They're now, of course, in their 40s and um, have their own families. And that's a great joy to me. I have other families. I have other children. Because one of the things that God has had, had me doing in my life is reaching out to others who are homeless, and uh, here in Africa we set up homes for children from Angola and Rwanda uh, who had seen their parents massacred in wartime. And uh, these are some of my precious children in Africa and actually some of them are now Doing the same, reaching out to other homeless children. Here's one of my children Colonel Alexander Tarasenko. Colonel Alexander Tarasenko was the governor of a prison in Ukraine. I had started working in that prison to uh, reach other prisoners for Christ, which has always been my joy. As I said, my teachers always said I'd spend my life in and out of jail. (laughs) I've been in and out of jails throughout the world, in America, in Africa, throughout Europe, and uh, occasionally I meet people like this. And Alexander Tarasenko stopped me in the exercise yard one day, And he said, what is it you tell these men? I said, what do you mean? He said, I had the worst man in this prison come to me last week, a guy called Sasha McHideck. The only time I've ever seen him was to put him on punishment and put him in solitary confinement. And he came to me last week and he said, Sir, you need Jesus. (laughs) He said, what's all that about? I said, well, I can't really tell you that right here in the exercise yard. You know, this is quite a a dangerous place for us. He acknowledged that that was true. So um, he said, look, meet me on the way out. He said, I'll um, meet you at the officer's mess. So I met him there. And rather to my surprise, uh, he said the most private place would be in the sauna. And so we went in the sauna. Now, you have to understand that in a Russian sauna, you um, don't go in with any clothes on at all. And um, when you're in there, you get whipped uh, with birch twigs. And, uh, and when you've been whipped for five minutes, then you get, jump into a freezing, freezing cold water. And you do this several times. In the middle of all this, I'm trying to explain to him the Gospel. (laughs) Which has to be one of the strangest times for me to present the Gospel, but not on that particular day, but later, he became a Christian, and his wife became a Christian, and his three children became Christians. And he gave us permission to build a church right there in the heart of the prison. A church that uh, seats 350. Here he is the day I baptised him in the River Dnieper. And uh, here's the church that he allowed us to build. And in that prison, in that church, I have seen hundreds of prisoners come to know Christ. Many of them now are ministering throughout Ukraine. Some of the most hardened criminals you ever likely to meet, members of the Ukrainian mafia, have been baptised and are now following Christ. Here's a guy. He was the only foreigner in the prison at this stage. He came to me one day and he said, what will happen to me if I get baptised? I said, you'll die. He knew what it was to be bullied. Believe me, if you're the only foreigner, the only coloured person in a Ukrainian prison, you're not going to survive long. You know what he said to me? He said, if they kill me, I'll get out of here. I'll go to heaven baptize me and so i did here he is the day that he left prison i gave him two thousand dollars and his ticket back to vietnam i said now kim when you get home just buy yourself a little motorbike and a box of bibles and go around and start preaching the gospel He said, but Vic, it's illegal to do that in Vietnam. You can't do it. I said, what are they going to do to you? They'll put me in prison. I said, great. You've already had some training. (laughs) So he went back to Vietnam. And he is now the bishop of uh, the Lutheran Church in Vietnam. An amazing, amazing story of how God can use one man. Here in Ukraine, I've been working in Ukraine for 27 years. It's been a huge privilege for me uh, to be in the place that God gave me a love for. When I first went to Ukraine, there were many, many children that were homeless and lived in sewers because the hot water pipes run through the sewage systems. And uh, they just sort of sling a hammock between the pipes to lift themselves up out of the sewage. Let me introduce you to the guy on the left. His name is Alex. This is the first day I met him. You can see by his eyes that he is... Pretty worldly wise, he's living in the cemetery with his alcoholic mother. His mother uh, needed her alcohol every day, and so Alex would go and beg at the funerals. And when he got enough money, he'd go and buy the vodka, and then she would drink it and get into the grave that was going to be filled the next day, because there she would be safe in her drunken state and he had to survive and I met him this day he put his hand in mine as we left the cemetery together looked up at me as much as to say well what are you going to do about it and I knew what I had to do about it I phoned my wife I said darling how would you like to have a son And uh, of course, she was really excited. (laughs) Not. (laughs) But eventually, when we prayed about it, we decided yes, we would adopt him. But we were told by the authorities here that we couldn't bring him to the UK because uh, I was apparently too old. We've had 88 children since they told us that we were too old, but that's another story. And uh, so Alex became our son. Here he is the first day he came into our care. And you can see he's really suspicious of me. And uh, frankly, at that age, he was nine. I'd have been suspicious too. But eventually the barriers broke down and we built this house I called it Alpha House. It's our headquarters for Hope now. And uh, our first family we uh, had there uh, with Misha and Lena as the house parents. And I would be there as often as I could. And we started building many other homes. Here I am at one of the orphanages. And I'll give you this picture because little guy on the left there Uh, that's looking straight at me, Uh, he became our second son. Uh, He came into our care and uh, he had been living just here. This is a lean-to against an old silk factory. Uh, Silk factory had been redundant for many years. It's just this one room, no lights, no water, No heating. When I tell you Ukraine can get 30 degrees below zero in the winter. That is not where you want to live. When he was five, his alcoholic mother and father deserted and um, left him to look after his two younger sisters at five He took them into Chikassi, which is about a 10-kilometer walk. There he found where his grandmother was living, in a drinking den with five men. And those men beat Stas every day. Their game was to have him hold a bucket of water above his head, and they said, if you spill any... We will beat your sisters. That kind of sadistic behavior he put up with for two years. When I met him, he was like a little frightened rabbit. I wish you could meet him today. Here he is the first day he came into our care with his two sisters. That's Alex over to the right there. And uh, here he is the day he was baptized, and um, that is a very precious picture to me because I had the joy of baptizing both of my sons, and both of them now serve the Lord. Both, of course, are adults now, and I wish you could meet them. Uh, Stas, in fact, was due to be here today with uh, his two sons and his dear wife, Lena, Uh, we were going to go on to Minehead but we couldn't afford it so I made them stay at home Uh, otherwise you'd have met them all today this is Alex on the day of his wedding Alex is now the um, Minister of Youth at his church this is Stas on his wedding day with Lena, very beautiful uh, Lena and this is the other half of my family, Ruth and Peter, David and Christy. Uh, David is the minister of one of the Baptist churches in Luton. And here's Alex and the kids visiting my home. You can see I'm a somewhat keen gardener. And um, to be able to at this stage in life, look back and to be able to see what God has done in the lives of so many people uh, is to me a huge, huge privilege. It has been my privilege throughout the years to take people like Alex who is here with these young people at the church. And he's the next generation of evangelists, ministers of the gospel. I look at the lives of those who've been in prison now doing work like this. And uh, this is a conversion of an old building into a home for youngsters as they come out of prison. And... Uh, we're converting this into a garage where they can learn a skill. And uh, these are jobs that I'm doing now. And Here, elderly people at Christmas. We were able to uh, give Christmas dinners this year, to, or last year. No, actually this year, because their Christmas is in January. Uh, this year... We gave dinners to 200 elderly people just to express the love of Christ and to see some of those elderly people in their years when many of them will not survive, but rejoicing in a newfound faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the children of Jesus come In all ages. They can be kids. I've seen many kids come to know Jesus. Many elderly come to know Jesus. They're all the children of God. And if you've never ever understood what that means, I want this morning to mean something to you here some words that we read earlier therefore since we have been justified through faith since we have been justified through faith what on earth does that mean to you it means that we who are sinners you know the fact that I did all that stuff when I was a boy. Is immaterial. Sin comes in all sizes, really. A whole lot of worse crooks than me uh, in very successful positions in the city of London. They stole millions and none of them went to prison. They're crooks. But you don't have to steal millions to be a crook. There's so many things that we do that are displeasing to God. And so many things we don't do that we know we ought to do. It's all sin. But here it says, we have been justified By faith. It means that we are made as though we are not sinners. We who know we've done things wrong, by an act of God, in Jesus Christ upon the cross, he took our sin upon himself. And even more remarkable than that, it says in Corinthians that he put his righteousness his goodness into us. Can you imagine that that everything you ever did wrong in your life or ever will do wrong in your life is there on the cross. He died in order that we might be forgiven. That we might be made just as if we had never sinned. That's what it means. We've been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's an amazing thing. To die in peace even more amazing, to live in peace. I've been with a number of people as they've died. To see a Christian die is a glorious thing. I had the privilege of seeing my wife die. I held her hand And I said, my darling, I love you so much. And the very next breath was her last. As I just handed her into the arms of a loving father. Wouldn't you love to die a death like that? (laughs) Seriously? To die in peace. Knowing that the next step is life. Like being born again. You didn't know what life was like. At least you can't remember what life was like when you were in your mother's womb. You came out screaming, Brat! But you found life. That first breath was the breath of life. And that's what it's going to be like. When you die, it's in order to take the next breath in eternity. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Wow! That's the impact of it. We have access into His presence, into His glory. Listen. Listen, the tense, since we have been justified, we have peace with God. We have access into His glory. Do you see it? That's the certainty of faith. And I say to you who have never experienced that, do not leave this place this morning without settling it. Give God ten days if you like. I guarantee you'll never count them. But live. But live. Live. Live as one free from the guilt of sin. Live as one who has peace with God. And live as one who has the certainty that when you die, you are simply going to step into His presence. I'm going to give an invitation this morning. May not be something you're used to, but I'm compelled to do. You know, one of the things that happens when you get older is you become more urgent. I'm 78. I don't know how many years God is going to give me from now. I could even live as long as Ken Darch. But uh, in these the closing years, I have an urgency about me. All my heart cries for those who do not know Jesus. And I say to you, please, please put aside all of those other things. Choose today whom you will serve and say with me, as for me, as for me, I will serve the living God. And my prayer will be that you have a life as rich and as full and as fulfilling as the life that I have had. Beyond all measure, where would I have been today had I not met Jesus Where would my dear son Alex be today if he had not held my hand in that cemetery? Where would Stas be today if he had not come into our care? I dread to think. Where will you be only you know that and God please surrender your life to Christ accept the offer of his love his grace his forgiveness and come into the family of God I'm going to pray a prayer And you may want to make this your prayer. Just quietly, where you are, as I pray, if you can pray this prayer with me, just pray it along. You don't have to say it out loud, though you may want to say it out loud. I'll ask all the Christians to say it out loud, okay? You're a Christian, you say it out loud because it won't hurt you to say it again. Enable others around you to come to faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I know I've done lots of things wrong. And I'm really, really sorry. Please forgive me. Please give me the gift of faith. Please give me the gift of life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can begin to live for you. And please help me in the days to come to understand more and more of your love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Forty years ago, I wrote a little booklet. It's very simple. It's called Just Grace. And uh, thousands of people have taken this book. Many thousands have become Christians through it. And I'd love you to have a copy. If you prayed that prayer today, will you simply do this? Will you come to me uh, after the service and just give me your name and if you will, your address, but though your address is not essential. It's just that I may like to send you a little uh, follow-up booklet as well. And... um, just give me your address if you would like that. But certainly give me your name so that I can pray for you in the coming days. Will you do that? And um, if you would like prayer, if you'd like somebody to just spend time with you and pray with you, can I ask, uh, is that room back there a prayer room? A prayer ministry team be in front. Okay, let's have a prayer ministry team to the front then. Uh, after the hymn, are we closing with a hymn? And can, it be? and can It Be. What a great hymn to finish with. Okay. So if uh, the prayer team will come to the front, and if you would like just to come and see me, write down your name, and if you will, your address on a, any scrap of paper, and just let me know that you have decided today to follow Jesus. Okay. Thank you for giving me the enormous privilege of sharing my life with you. Thank you.